So as Barry talked about, we're going to be entering into a study called The Story, where we're taking the Bible stories chronologically in order and going through them uh, for a good section of this year, which I'm very excited about. So Dwayne and I talked that maybe a, a good sermon before we launch off this study uh, would be uh, on the evidence for the reliability of the Bible, since we're going to be spending all the time going through the exact stories of the Bible. You know, is the Bible a reliable source? So today we're going to be investigating the reliability of the Bible. I, I figured, you know, with any kind of investigation, you've got to start off with definitions to understand the terminology we're using. So let's start off with the word evidence. What does evidence mean? Well, the dictionary definition says, the available body of facts or information indicating whether belief or a proposition is valid or true. So evidence is whatever the self-definition is evidence would be whatever points to that self-definition points to whether that's a reliable definition or not. Does that make sense? I don't know if you guys have done a lot of investigation to things. I don't know if we have any investigators here. But you, you take what the claim is, like the self-definition, then you see what kind of evidence points towards that self-definition. So the Bible claims a lot, and then we're going to talk about whether the evidence holds up to the Bible being reliable or not. To, to make an example of this, I know some of you guys are still confused out there, so I'm trying to figure out an example here um, of what we're doing this morning with the evidence and definition. I, the example that came to my mind was I grew up in the mountains of PA, where the big thing in Pennsylvania was, you know, at least where I grew up, was you want to be a redneck. And so we have these arguments of who was the bigger redneck. So some people would say, oh, I'm a biggest redneck because I drive my John Deere to tra- John Deere tractor to church on Sundays. That's what rednecks do. And, oh, you're not a redneck. You know, my, you know they have these arguments. And so I, I never tried to be a redneck. But I, I tend to get caught in the, the middle of these arguments. I'm like, well, what do you do? You know, I'm trying to bring peace here. And, uh, and it's like, what's your evidence for being a redneck? And what's yours? And we, we talk about the definition of a redneck. And, and actually, the definition of a redneck is this, an unsophisticated rural person in the southeast USA. Uh, Jeff Foxworthy, who's kind of a, uh, a scholar or a pro here on rednecks, his definition is a glorious lack of sophistication. Um, and so... For a safe example, I'm going, to, I'm going to read through some evidence of what a redneck is, and then we're going to see if, if uh, you know, with these people, I mean, not you guys, definitely not you guys, but, you know, the people in Pennsylvania that, uh, that I was working with, see if they're really rednecks or not. So uh, we would, we'd, we'd, we'd do this. We'd ask some questions like, okay, well, an evidence of redneck is if you mow your lawn and you find a car. Then you're, you're probably a redneck then. You know, that's, that's good evidence. And they would say, yeah, I'm either that or no, I've never done that. Then, well, you're not a redneck. Um, uh, some more, like, if, if there are more than 10 lawsuits currently pending against your dog, you're probably a, you know, unsophisticated person in the Southeast USA. Uh, if you own a, mo- a home that is mobile and five cars that aren't, that's good evidence. Um, if your local taxidermist number is on speed dial, that's some good evidence. If your mother has ammo on her Christmas list, if you consider the fifth grade your senior year, um, and if you have a very special baseball cap that you use for formal occasions, that's, that's pretty good evidence. Um, and if, if your wife have ever said to you, honey, you got to move that transmission because I got to take a bath, then... Probably a redneck. And uh, if you've ever taken your fishing pole to SeaWorld, probably a redneck. So, and the point of this, again, is to make an example of you have a definition of a redneck. And you have all this evidence. And if, now, if you, were, if you were one or two of those, you're probably not a redneck. That's kind of coincidence. But if you're five or six, 
or five or six or seven or eight out of that list. I mean, you kind of got to swallow the fact here. Um, and, and of course, in PA, in the context I'm talking, they would, they would win. They would say, you are crowned the redneck. And they would, you know, go home and celebrate and do their, do their celebration. But this morning, that's exactly what we're going to be doing. We're going to be taking the Bible and its self-claims. And then we're going to be taking evidence outside of the Bible to see if it's reliable, if it really matches up to the self-claims of the Bible. So, what kind of self-claims of the Bible do we have? Well, there's a lot, but I'm going to take a few. Uh, The first claim that the Bible claims about itself is that it is truth. In John 17, 17, uh, it says, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So that's a a claim from the Bible. Uh, The Bible also claims that it will never fail, never go away. Uh, In Isaiah 40, uh, verse 8, the the verse says, The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. The Bible also claims that it is the word of God. It's divine. That it was inspired by God himself. That's a pretty big claim. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training up in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's the the self-definition of the Bible. That's what it claims. Now, most of us here, you're probably thinking, yeah, Keith, we all believe in the Bible. We, you know, we, we come to church to study the Bible. And this isn't really applying to me. But let me ask you a question. What would happen if someone would walk up to you and say, hey, I'd love to believe the Bible. The Bible it looks like a great book. But you've got to help me out here. I mean, how, how do I know this thing isn't just phony? Like, how can I really trust this book? How, how do I know this isn't some guy way back in something B.C. that wrote this book to bind people up and to, you know, get, you know bind people up to religion and make his, his God sound better than everyone else? And it's just a fake I mean, what would you say? How would you respond to that person? You know, some of you guys have uh, invitation cards for the story, the series starting next Sunday. Um, you know, when you hand those out to the people and say, hey, come to our church because we're talking about the Bible. I mean, if their first question is, okay, how do I know the Bible is legit? I mean, what would you say? Well, because the Bible says so. I mean, you can't use a source against itself. That's circular reasoning. It doesn't work. And there are approximately 26 other religious books that people of faith claim to be divinely inspired, written by God. The exact claim that we have on the Bible. What makes the Bible any different from those 26 other books? The Quran, the Book of Mormons, that's just a few examples of these books. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give a defense for everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. You see, the faith we have as Christians, it's not a dumb faith. I, I know we always say this line, we just got to believe it. You just got to believe it. And while there's truth to that, that's not the whole truth. Because the faith we, act, we have actually has very strong evidence for. If you seek it, you will find answers. So we're going to go through these evidences. Now obviously there's a pile of evidence of the Bible. It's, it, it's, uh, it's amazing the evidence when you start studying. I got a little overwhelmed as I was studying for the sermon so we can only, I only got like 30 minutes here, so we can only scratch the surface. But we're going to go through the evidences of the Bible and what it claims, at least what I, from my studies, I've found to be the, the five strongest um, evidences. And so if you already believe in the Bible, 
I want you to pay attention, grab your notebook out, grab a pen, start writing down some of these evidences. Because more than likely, because the Bible has been under attack for a long time and is still today under attack by people who are saying it's irrelevant, it's not true. And what would you, how would you respond? So I'm going to hopefully give you some tangible things you can walk away with to respond to that. And if you're sitting here this morning and you yourself are like, hey, I, I've never heard one external proof that the Bible is actually reliable or true. I just believe it because somebody told me to. And I, I really don't know if I really believe it. Like, it's, it's such an old book. Like, can we really trust it? If you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering about that, I hope that this sermon convinces you that the Bible is what it claims. Okay, let's go to number one. The unity of Scripture. Okay, here's the question I asked, I asked a student once. I said, look, if, if you were God, which I know there's some theological uh, problems here, but if you were God and you were in his shoes, okay, and you wanted to give your book talking about your story and who you are to the people you created on earth, how would you do it? And you know what his response was? He's like, well, I would, you know, come down big angel, send a big angel down, you know, and fire and lights and the Bible and do this big presentation. And I said, you know, clever thought. But I said, I don't think that would work. Because what happens about three or four generations later when great-grandfather's telling his story about how the angel came down and handed him the Bible? I mean, you might think great-grandpa's a little weird. Like, how can I really trust this guy? So you're saying that one day a big old angel came down and handed you this book and that's what you have? I mean, like, is that, I mean, it all depends on one person's truthfulness whether that Bible is actually from God or not. So God is so brilliant. And the way he put the Bible together gives us the ability to go back into history and to study and realize that there's no other alternative. But we had a God outside of time who knows all, who's sharing his words that are inspired by him to people. So check this out. Did you know that the Bible is actually 66 documents collected by 40 different authors in three different languages? Over a period of 1,500 years, that's 60 generations, and it talks about life's most controversial issues, like what's, uh, what's man's purpose, where did the universe come from, where, where did evil come from, what happens when we die, and it has complete unity. Now think about this. You got to think, okay, if I would go and I would ask 40 different people from 60 different generations who lived on three different continents, who spoke three different languages, and asked them to write 66 documents on life's most controversial issues, I think I'd probably get 66 different responses. But look what God did to show that this could only be him. He said, I'm going to use 40 people. They're not even going to live on the same continent. They're going to go over a span of 60 generations. They're not going to be four cell phones and court email. They, they don't even speak the same language. Three different languages. And I'm going to inspire these guys separately. And then I'm going to bring all my work together. And it's going to fit perfectly like a puzzle. And people are going to be wow. The only way this could have happened is if a divine, all-knowing God, who's outside of time, put this book together for us as people. I think, I think God is so brilliant in doing that. Um, and history, you can go back and history proves it. It's awesome. I think the message is so misunderstood by outside people because they look at the Bible and they think, well, this, this, you know, this, is just a, this is just a book put together by rules. This is a book put together by some guy who wanted to bind people up religiously and just a bunch of rules. And they miss the whole point of the Bible and the message of the Scripture saying this is God's story. Because the whole thing didn't come together and just fit. 
in all its different sections to a story that you could read. And realize that there's a God and the story is his redemptive plan for his people who had sinned and fallen away. And it all matched up. All right. Let's go to our uh, second evidence here. I'm going to have to go through these kind of fast. There's so much more evidence, as I said earlier, but we uh, don't have the time to go. So I'm hoping that you can grab little nuggets of truth here and use it. But if you are one to study, go study. There is a lot of books, a lot of great resources online to study this to go deep into. I'm just touching the surfaces here. All right, so here we go. We're going to go number two, uh, evidence for the Bible, uh, fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the major elements that separates the Bible from these other religious books that claim the same thing to be written by a divine person. All these other books that claim to be divinely inspired have never had any prophecies fulfilled. This is important. Why? Well, because the, the quickest and fastest way, if you're a false prophet, to, start make, to be found out of is to start making predictions of the future. Right? If you want a false prophecy to be found out, you start making predictions of the future, people quickly understand you're false. So these books don't make predictions of the future. If they are, they're very vague. Like, look at Harold Camping. You know, I, I feel bad for the guy. He's, you know, May 21st, 2011, that was the end of the world prophecy. Quickly, people found out that he was a false prophet. But the Bible's different. The Bible has hundreds of very specific prophecies that were written hundreds of, hundreds of years before we saw them even fulfilled. According to Charlie Campbell, he's an apologist, 20, 27% of the Bible is predictive prophecies at the time it was written. 27. Again, if you were God trying to relay your book to people, what's one thing you would do to show that you are the true God? You would fill it up with predictive prophecies of things that are going to happen. And people can watch them be filled out. So 27%. Um, a few examples of these, because we can't go into a lot of detail, but a few examples of these is uh, about the Messiah Jesus and how he would come. He was going to be born of the seed of Abraham. He was going to be in the tribe of Judah in the lineage of, da- or lineage of David. That's uh, Genesis 12, 49 and 2 Samuel 7. Micah 5 talks about how Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7 claims that he was going to be born of a virgin. All kinds of miracles that Jesus was going to be, perform, be performing was prophesied about. And then Jesus came and did those exact same miracles. Daniel 9 actually prophesies the precise year in history that Jesus was going to die. And it happened. Psalms 22, uh, David prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced. And that was 300 years before crucifixion was ever even invented. A thousand years before Jesus had his hands and his feet pierced on the cross. Do you see what God is doing here? This is all stuff in history we can go to and look in history and documents to see what happened. And the Bible is prophesying all this stuff to show that it's a reliable source. Other prophecies in the Bible predict the rise and fall of nations that rose and fell. Um, these prophecies just give us strong evidence that an all-powerful, all-knowing God wrote these through these authors just as the Bible claimed. Now, if you're a skeptic out there, and you will get this from skeptics, and I think it's a good skepticism too, is they'll say, hold up, wait a minute. You know, the majority, in fact, 456 of these prophecies, now there's a lot more than that, but 456 of these prophecies are prophesying about Jesus coming and what he would do. 
How do you know the disciples just didn't make that up when they're writing about it? How do you know the disciples knew the prophecies because they knew the scriptures well? And when Jesus came, they just lied about him and said he did all these things when he actually didn't. We're going we're gonna to tackle that skepticism um, in evidence number four. So hold on to that thought. We'll, we'll come back and address that. But let's move on to uh, evidence number three, archaeological and manuscript proof. Now, archaeology cannot prove that the Bible was inspired by God. But it can prove that the Bible is historic, historically accurate, and gives more, which gives more evidence to the Bible being reliable. So the Bible has proven itself in the, in the archaeological world. The Bible talks a lot about historical places, people, and archaeological finds have never proven the Bible to have an error. In fact, the opposite have happened. A lot of archaeologists are actually using the Bible to go to certain places to find what the Bible claims, and they're finding cities and sites that were currently undiscovered. I don't know if you guys uh, get into archaeology a, a lot or not, um, but Dr. Nelson Gluck, he's actually from Cincinnati, Ohio. He's known as one of the world's best archaeologists, made this quote. He said, it may be stated categorically, categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And there are many, many, many more. I wish you could list them all. Archaeologists who have, who have been digging and finding things and realizing it's matching up with the Bible. Not, not one single time have we found an indiscrepancy with what the Bible has said. And we've dug there and not been there. I mean, that's, that's some pretty hardcore evidence that the Bible is reliable on a historical level. There's so many of these discoveries that I got a little overwhelmed studying them, so I made a little video for you. So I just want to get a little taste of, of, what, of some of these finds because they're really interesting. So guys, let's roll film with this archaeological finds. Some other discoveries include the ruins of Nineveh. Of course, Nineveh was long thought to be a mythological city, just part of a big fish story because of its association with the book of Jonah, uh, until they found it. Uh, Hezekiah's tunnel has been excavated, mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 20. The ruins of the Hittite civilization talked about in Genesis chapter 15. Critics for a long time thought that uh, they were mythological people because they were only found in the Bible. Well, that view has been overturned by archaeology. Uh, the ancient ruins of Babylon in modern-day Iraq have been excavated. This is, of course, where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spent many years of their life. You can go to Iraq today and walk around some of the ruins there. The Pool of Siloam was discovered a few years ago. This is the very place mentioned in John chapter 9 where Jesus sent the blind man to wash the mud off of his eyes and where his eyes were opened up. Jacob's well, mentioned in John chapter 4, has been identified. Uh, you've seen a photograph of it there. It's now covered uh, by a Greek Orthodox church, but the well still produces fresh spring water. This is the very well where Jesus sat down with the Samaritan woman there in John 4. The pool of Bethesda has been excavated. This is the pool where Jesus told that man who had been lame for 38 years to take up his bed and walk. Herod's palace has been excavated, spoken about in Mark chapter 6. This is the very place where John the Baptist was imprisoned and killed. The Roman historian Josephus even mentions this very palace and the fact that John the Baptist was imprisoned and murdered there. Another discovery was the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the site in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus himself often taught. 
And the list goes on and on and on and on. It's amazing that the Bible has, uh, has this historical reliability. And you can take someone who's like, I don't know how, how trustworthy the Bible is. I don't know if I can really trust and say, well, let's just talk on a historical level. Look what archaeologists have found. And look what the Bible claims. It matches up. Uh, a cool, amazing discovery happened in 1993 uh, in a town of Dan near the, uh, near the Sea of Galilee. I don't, 1993 wasn't that long ago. Was anyone here born in 1993? You want to stand up for me? So you can get an idea how long ago that was. Nobody was born in 1993. Wow. It's been a bad year for Mennonites. I don't know. A lot of marriage arguments or something. I'm not sure what was going on. But okay, well, nobody from 1993, but that's not that long ago. So up till 1993, there was no external proof that David, the king of Israel, actually existed. And critics would use this saying, well, how can you Christians even believe what you believe? Because David's like your hero of faith. And there's not one single piece of evidence that David, the king of Israel, ever existed. Well, that criticism came crashing down in 1993 when they found a rock. As they were digging, and it talked about David, the king of Israel. Cool, huh? And, and to add to the archaeological proof that the Bible's trustworthiness, uh, of the Bible's trustworthiness, is the manuscripts that we have of the written Old and New Testament. We have two, well, we have 25,000 partial and complete handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament and hundreds of Old Testament manuscripts, which proves that the Bible's claim of preserving, of God preserving his word is accurate. All these thousands of manuscripts have been passed down and passed down. Uh, some religious faiths claim that the Bible can't still be accurate. Uh, the Mormons are kind of the leading uh, religion that would say the Bible that Christians have today is inaccurate. It can't be trusted. It's, uh, it's been tampered with. Joseph Smith, the Mormon founder leader, says, Ignorant translators, careless transcribers, and corrupt priests have committed many errors in the Bible. So they claim that they have the, they have their, the right Bible, which has been revealed to Joseph Smith. So, are they right? And I think that's a good question to ask. Has the Bible been tampered with? Well, let me tell you an amazing story here. In 1947, that wasn't that long ago. Anyone, anyone born in 1947? Nobody born in 19... Man. Oh, oh, here we go. We got 1948. That's awesome. All right. Uh, A 12-year-old shepherd boy was throwing rocks in a cave and heard some pottery crash. He climbs into this cave and he finds what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were handwritten copies of the Old Testament that were 2,000 years old. It gave scholars... The ability to go back, way back into time, and read the early church's manuscripts of the Old Testament. And as they read them, they realized that the the manuscripts that we have today in our Bible, exact same ones. God's, God's promise to preserve his word is true. I think it's amazing. Okay. We, we need to move on. Again, the archaeological and manuscript world has so much evidence to the scripture being reliable, but we have to move on. In fact, I'm not doing so good on time here. Um, I don't have time to go into the scientific proof, um, but there is scientific proof. Let me give you one scientific proof, all right? So the Bible also makes scientific claims. And we have any science nerds out there? Anyone? Yes. Yes. All right. A few of you out there, unite. All right. Uh, so a scientific claim that Greek astronomers had was that 
the star count, after they made their charts, the star count was about 1,026. And then later in 1630, a German astronomer came along and he said, well, you actually counted some stars twice. The, the actual count of stars is 1,600. Now, in the Bible claims, in Jeremiah 33:22, that the stars actually can't be numbered. It's impossible. It would be like trying to count the, the sand in the seas. But, oh, no, 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 no. Counts 1,600. Well, okay, well, as science progressed and we built telescopes and so on, currently the count of stars is 100 billion galaxies and 200 billion stars in each galaxy. And that's the rough estimate. I mean, the Bible is reliable. The Bible states it. It's true and it's so fun as science finally catches up to the Bible. They realize, hey, way back, way back then, uh, God was revealing his word to his people to show, I'm, a, I'm God. I'm outside of time. I know everything. You can trust this book I'm giving you. Um, uh, one, more, one more science example, okay, just for you guys out there, just for the nerds out there. Okay, Job and Isaiah talk about how the world's round. Okay, it's cool. Study it sometime. They, they, they claim that, the, that God, as he revealed his words, they, they said the, the world is round. The earth is round. Well, yet in 19, uh, well, it was 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I did learn something in school. Uh, almost 2,000 years after Isaiah, some people were still scared that Columbus was going to float off the f- edge of the earth because the world was flat. Uh, we all know what the truth is there since science has kind of caught up to the Bible. Okay, we got to keep moving on. So far, we've talked about the unity of the Bible. We've talked about fulfilled prophecies. We've talked about archaeological and manuscript evidence. And the fourth one I want to touch on this morning is the author's exposure of sin and persecution. One of the major pieces of evidence in, is the way that these authors that God inspired wrote about themselves. This is uh, coming from Second Peter. This is Peter's claim here. He says, For we did not follow clever devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Knowing, all of, knowing, uh, knowing the first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that was their claim. They claimed the Holy Spirit. And I think the way that they wrote followed that up. If you think about it, if the, this is going back to if the disciples were lying. If the disciples were lying, don't you think they would have made themselves look kind of good in their writings? If the authors from the whole Old Testament, if they were writing, don't you think that if they were, if they were making this stuff up, like they would make themselves look kind of good? But when you read the Bible, you hear about Noah's drunkenness. You hear about Abraham's lying about Sarah as his wife. You see Moses' outburst of anger and uh, the way he hits the rock. You hear about David's adultery. Peter confesses to denying Jesus three times. And the disciples, and the disciples had all these arguments about who's the greatest. These foolish arguments that they wrote about. And Paul's confession to be the chief of sinners this doesn't sound like writers who are writing, who are making stuff up and writing. It sounds like guys are really being honest and really being inspired to write something and to further the reliability of the authors, especially the disciples. I don't know if you know, if you know how the disciples ended, but they all but one were martyred. Like they were murdered and killed for their testimony. Not, not a testimony that, that someone told them to believe and they just believed it. Testimony that they were, gave eyewitness to. They saw what was happening. 
And they said, you didn't see that. And they said, yes, we did see it. We know it's true. Do you know that they were, they were axed into two? They were skinned alive. They were hung upside down on crosses. They were uh, drugged in the streets and stoned. I mean, these guys, all of them, but one died slow, painful, agonizing deaths. And yet they said, we're not, we're not recanting. We saw this. They sealed their testimonies with their own blood. They said, we saw this. That's, if someone's willing to die, that gives a lot of proof. If 11 guys are all willing to die because of something they saw, we don't, we don't lie about something and then take it to the grave if someone's persecuting us and torturing us. The fact that they sealed their testimony with their own blood, it's again, God showing us, hey, look, this is real. You can trust these guys. So for those who are saying, hey, the disciples just made it up about Jesus. Jesus didn't actually do all those things. Well, he, you know, we all know Jesus was a historical figure, but he didn't actually do all those prophecies that they said. You go take them to the disciples and say, these guys saw it, the eyewitnesses, and they're willing to give their life down or lay their life down for that testimony. Okay, one last uh, evidence I want to share this morning. And I think this is the greatest piece of evidence. I think this one kind of tops them all. The evidence is the transformation that Scripture has had on the world. Up to this point, a lot of things strongly indicate that God has written it and that's historically accurate. It's a reliable source. But I think this one really seals it. The Bible has changed the world. No other book in the world has transformed so many lives, has transformed so many societies for good other than the Bible. It's powerful. Wherever the Bible has gone and has been received, it has transformed so many people and a transforming effect on so many societies. It's converted millions to faith in Jesus. Saying, I believe this. Many people, including me, would claim that they were wretched sinners, addicted to sin, caught up in morality, didn't know how to get out. And this God of the Bible, as they started reading about him and started doing what the Bible said, has transformed their lives. And now today they're godly men and women, completely different than what they used to be. If you are here this morning and you are transformed because of being a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the biggest proof. You're a walking proof that the Bible is reliable. You don't, you don't have to go to all these different evidence. I mean, I think it's good to, especially the thinkers. You need to go back to this evidence. But you can say, look, the biggest, there's, there's historical evidence. There's archaeological evidence. There's um, the way the Bible is brought together. There's a lot of evidence pointing towards God. But look at me. I'm the biggest proof here. I wasn't like this before I met God. I wasn't transformed. You can't tell me it's not real and this Bible isn't reliable because I've been following and reading and studying this. And it's transformed me. I'm different. Okay, let's recap here a little bit. I know it's a lot of information. I hope you guys don't have an information overload here. All right, for all you note takers, we're going to recap a little bit. So the five evidences, if someone comes up to you and they're just like, how do I know the Bible's reliable? How do I know it's really true? And if you're sitting this morning, sitting here this morning, and you don't know, look at these evidences. The unity of the Bible. 40 different authors, 60 different generations, 
Three different continents, 66 documents, three different languages. And God brings all this together and talks about life's most controversial issues. And it folds into one story and it all agrees. And there's no uh, discrepancies. Fulfilled prophecy. Just read the Bible. In the Old Testament, it has all these prophecies, predictive prophecies. In the New Testament, we see them being fulfilled. Look at archaeologists and their studies and how they found stuff in the Bible. The historical uh, and, the, and the manuscripts, the historical uh, proof that the Bible is. And then I don't have it up here because we don't have time to go into it. But look at the scientific stuff. Look at the scientific proof of the Bible. The Bible comes a lot of stuff from science. And look at the author's testimony of the way they were open about their sin. And look at the way they were persecuted and put to death because of what they wrote. And they still wouldn't take it back because they knew it was true. And then look at even more current history. Look at uh, way back as far as you can look. But also look at current history. Look at the transformational power of the Bible. And how it's changed lives. Including my life. There's so much evidence that we can take this book and we can say this is truth. I don't just have to believe it. I can study and it all comes together. Like, yes, this is truth. So hopefully this morning you've gained a little bit of knowledge. Um, and you've learned how to defend your faith. Uh, to doubters that you meet. But I guess my question to end this sermon is this. What are you going to do with the Bible? So we've, we've, we've proven it's true. We have evidence it's, it's pretty blatant evidence, pretty bold evidence that the Bible is what it claims. What are you going to do with the Bible? Like, so the Bible claims it's truth. And, and maybe you're sitting here this morning like, oh yeah, I believe everything you said, Keith. Everything you said, right on, man. I agree. Bible's truth. Bible's, Bible's legit. It's reliable. But true belief is proven by sacrifice. I guess my challenge here, my question is, what are you going to do with the Bible? If it really is truth, do, you, do we read it? Do we study it? Do we treat it like truth? Or is it just this head thing? Oh, yeah, it's truth. But we really don't believe it because our lives, I mean, sacrificially, our lives have not proven at all that it is truth. We, we barely pick it up. We barely study it. I just want to challenge you that if we know what truth is, if the God of the universe has revealed his word to us in a way that we can confidently say this is reliable, we need to live by this. We need to be studying it. We need to know every word. We need to be looking at the Old Testament, the New Testament, and saying, God, what is truth? How do I handle situations? What do you desire from me? Who are you? How do I live for your glory? And we no longer have the option for personal opinion of what is right and wrong. Think about that. We don't have the option anymore to say, well, to me it feels like this. And to you, it kind of feels like this. That's okay. Like, we know truth now. We don't have the option to do that. And with, with knowing the truth, we have an obligation now to live by that standard of truth. And really, that sounds a little, like, down. But really, it's exciting because that's a gift. We don't have to go through life wondering what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's not true, what's going to happen. We don't have to do that anymore. We can have confidence that we know truth. We know the end of the story. What a gift. What a gift. What an awesome God. That we can know answers and we can have hope. We don't have to, we don't have to wish for it and kind of, I think I'm going, I, I'm, uh, I'm just going to keep trying to do good things. We know the answers. And with that comes a responsibility. 
I just, just want to really encourage you this week and this next study through the story, I mean, let's pour ourselves into the word of God. We know it's true. Let's act like it's true. Let's study it. Let's make our lives devoted to it. Let's teach it when we can. Let's talk about it amongst each other. Let's, let's spread it.